Welcome to Co-Recursive, where we bring you discussions with thought leaders in the world of software development. I am Adam, your host. Metrics, dashboards, can all die in a fire. Yeah. And every software engineer should be on call. Boom. Hey. Today's interview is with Charity Majors. We talk about how to make it easier to debug production issues in today's world of complicated distributed systems. A warning, there is some explicit language in this interview. I originally saw Charity uh, give a talk where she said something like, fuck your metrics and dashboards, you should just test in production more. It was... Uh, it was a pretty hyperbolic statement, but she ended up backing it up with a lot of great insights. And I think you'll find this interview uh, similarly insightful. If you are a talented developer with functional programming skills, I've got a job offer for you. My employer, Tenable, is hiring. Hit me up via email uh, to find out more. I'll also drop a link in the show notes. Uh, Tenable is a pretty great place to work, if you ask me. Okay, I'm hearing a little... Can you actually hear me? Oh, I can hear you now. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let's call this the beginning. Cool. Charity, you are the CEO of uh, Honeycomb.io. Uh, accidental CEO. Accidental CEO. Well, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. It's really nice to be here. Thanks. So I used to I used to be able to, to debug production issues, like something would go wrong some ops person would come and get me and then we'd look at things and we'd find out whatever there's some some query that's running on this database that's just like causing a bunch of issues and we'll we'll knock it out or okay we need to turn off this feature and add some caching in front of it yeah. um and it I, you know i always felt like a hero it mostly works yeah yeah and now um now i've i've woken up into this dark future where first of all now like the i get paid before the ops person sometimes mm-hmm. And then, uh, like things are just crazy complicated. There's like more databases than people, it seems. And like every, every product that Amazon. 10 microservices per developer. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, that's what, that's what I wanted to have you on because I feel like maybe I'm hoping that maybe you have an answer, uh, for all this mess. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, I do. The answer is everything's getting harder. (laughs) <laughs> and we need to um, approach this not as an afterthought as an industry, but as something that we um, invest in, that we expect to spend money on, that we expect to spend time on. Um, and we have to upgrade our tools. Like the, the model that you described where, you know, you have your trusty, rusty ops buddy who kind of guides you through the subterranean passages, you know, but also like our system used to be tractable, you know, you could have a dashboard, you could glance at it, you could pretty much know in a glance where the problem was, if not what the problem was, and you could go fix it, right? Whether it's like launching GDB or looking what it been shipped, um, or like, you know, pairing somebody with a bunch of infrastructure knowledge, query, query smithing, whatever. Um, finding the component that was at fault was easy. And so you just needed localized knowledge in, in that code base or that technology or whatever. Um, as you mentioned, um, this basically doesn't work anymore for any moderately complex system. Um, the systems often loop back into themselves. They're platforms. Like when you're a platform, you're inviting all of your users' chaos to come live on your servers with you. Like and you just have to make it work, right? And make sure it doesn't hurt any of your other users. 
um, complex cotendency problems like that. Um, there's ripple effects, there's thundering herds, there's God knows how many programming languages and how many stored and databases don't even get me started. I come from databases, right? So I am, yeah. Anyway, um, the way I, I have been thinking of it is like, we're just kind of hitting, everyone is hitting a cliff, um, where suddenly, and it's pretty suddenly all of the tools in your tactics that have gotten you to this point, they no longer work. Um, and so like, this was exactly what happened to us. So my co-founder, Christine, and I are from Parse, which was the mobile backend as a service um, acquired by Facebook. And I was there. I was the first infrastructure engineer. And Parse was a beautiful product. Like, we just made promises. You know, you can write. This is the best way to build a mobile app. <laughs> you don't need to worry about the backend. You don't need to worry about the storage model or anything. We make it work for you. It's magic, which you can translate as a lot of operations work. Um, <laughs> And around the time we got acquired by Facebook, uh, I think we were serving about 60,000 mobile developers, which is not trivial. And this is also when I was coming to <laughs> think with dawning horror that we had built a system that was effectively undebuggable by some of the best engineers in the world. Like both of our backend teams were spending like all of our time tracking down one-offs, which is the kiss of death if you're a platform. But like, so we'd be like, parse it down like every day. And I'd be like, parse it down, dude. Like behold, my wall full of dashboards. They're all green. Like, Wi-Fi, <laughs> you know, uh, arguing with your users is always a great strategy. Um, so, but like I dispatched an engineer, I'd go to try and figure out what was wrong. It could be anything. We let them write their own queries and upload them. And we just had to make them work, right? Let them write their own JavaScript and upload them. We just had to make it work. Um, it, so like we, we could spend more time than we had just tracking down these one-offs and it was just failing. Um, I tried, fast forward to all the things I tried. Um the one thing that finally helped us get a dent, um, helped us get ahead of our problems was this janky ass, unloved tool at Facebook called Scuba that they had used to debug their MySQL databases a few years ago. It's mm-hmm. aggressively helpful to users. It just lets you slice and dice on any dimensions in basically real time, and they can all be high cardinality fields. Um, and this didn't mean anything to me. Time was, um, but like we got we got to handle our shit. And then I moved on, right? Because I'm an ops and like onto the next fire. And it wasn't until I was leaving Facebook that I kind of went, wait a minute. I no longer know how to engineer without the stuff that we've built in Scuba. Why is that? Like, how did it warm its way into my soul to the point where I'm like, this is how I understand what's happening in my production systems. And I, like, it's like, it's like getting glasses and then being told you can't have them anymore. Like, just like, how am I even going to know how to navigate in the world? So... <laughs> Like we've been thinking about this for a couple years now, and um, I'll pause for breath here in a second. But like, I don't want to say that like honeycomb is the only way to do this. Honeycomb is the result of all of this trauma that we have endured. Like when our systems hit this cliff of complexity, and we really thought at first it was just platforms that was going to hit this, and then we realized no, everyone's hitting it because it's a function of the complexity of the systems. You can't hold it in your brain anymore. You have to reason about it by putting it in a tool where you and others can navigate the information. So how did Scuba, is that what it was called, Scuba? Yeah. So what, what did it, like, what did it consume? Structured data. Uh, it's, it's agnostic about it, mostly logs. Um, but it was just the fact that it was, it was, fast. There was no like, you know, having to construct a query and walk away to get coffee and come back, you know, because when you're debugging, it has to be, you're asking lots of small questions as quickly as you can, right? You're following cookie crops instead of 
crafting one big question that you know will give you the answer because you don't know it's going to be the answer. You don't even know what the question is, right? Um, also, high cardinality. And when I say that, I mean, um, like, imagine you have a table with 100 million users. Um, high cardinality fields are going to be like the highest will be anything that's unique, unique ID, right? Social security number. Mm-hmm. Um, very high cardinality would be last name and first name. Very low would be gender and species, I assume, is the lowest of all, right? <laughs> so the reason I was laughing when you said fuck, fuck metrics, I've said that many times. The reason that I hate metrics so much, and this is what 20 years of operations software is built on, is the metric, right? Well, the metric's just a number. Um, then you can append tags to it to help you group them. You're limited in cardinality to the number of tags you can have, generally, which is 100 to 300. So you can't have more than 300 unique IDs um, to group those by, which is incredibly limiting. Um, some newer things like Prometheus let you put key value pairs in there, which is a little bit better, but bottom line, it's very limited and you have to think, you have to structure your question, your data just right. Like all the advice you can get online about how to try not to have these problems, which th- when you think about it is stupid because all of the in- interesting information that you're ever going to care about is high cardinality. Like request ID, raw query, you know, uh, you, you just need these, this information so desperately. Um, and so that, that I think was the killer thing for scuba. It was the first time I'd ever gotten to work with assist a data system that just let you have arbitrary. Like, so imagine, you know, a, a common thing that uh, companies will do as they grow is, well, they have some big customers who are more important to them. So they pre-generate all the dashboards for those customers because they can't, they don't have the ability to just break down by that one in 10 million user IDs and then any combination of anything else. When you can just do that, so many things get so simple. To make sure I understand it. So like if, if I'm using, uh, like with metrics, I, I have like Datadog, right? And I have yeah. like a, I have a Datadog metric and it, and yeah. like, I have basically I'll measure like this request on my mm-hmm. microservice or whatever, like how long does this normally take? Right. Mm-hmm. So it has like some sort of um, just the time that it takes from start to end on that. And I can put it on a, on a graph yeah. uh, or, or whatever. So high cardinality, if I understand it is saying like, let's, let's not just count the single number. Let's, let's count everything. Let's what, what's the user that requested it. It's, it's more like, so every, every metric is a number that is devoid of context, mm-hmm. right? It's just a number with some text. Um, but the way that scuba and honeycomb work is um, we work on events, arbitrarily wide events. You can have hundreds, like a well-instrumented service usually has 300 to 500 dimensions. Um, so like all of that data for the request is in one event. Um, the way we typically will instrument is that, you, you know, you initialize an event when the request enters the service. Uh, we pre-populate with some useful stuff, but then throughout, while the request is is being served, you just toss in whatever you think might possibly be interesting someday. Any IDs, any shopping cart information, any raw queries, any normalized queries, any timing information, every you know every hop to any other microservice, and then when the request is going to exit or error, you just ship that event off to us or to Scuba, and then you can then you have all this information that is all tied together, right? The context is what makes this incredibly powerful. Like a metric has zero context. So like when, you know, over the course of your request in your service, you might fire off like 20 or 30 different metrics, right? So counters, objects, whatever. But those aren't tied to each other. So you can't reason about them as all of these things are connected to this one request. This is so powerful because so much of debugging is looking for outliers, right? You want to know which of your requests failed and then you want to look for what they have in common. Was it that, you know, there is a you know, PropNet, some of the TCP 
like statistics were, were overflowing only on those? Or was it that those are the ones that were making a particular call to a, to a host or to a version of the software? Like just being able to just, just to slice and dice and figure that out at a glance um, is why um, our time to resolve these issues went from like hours or days or, or God knows to like seconds, just seconds or minutes, just repeatedly, because you can just ask the questions. So I would say that to summarize, like the thing that makes it powerful is that the fact that you have all that context, that you have a way to link all of these, these numbers together. And the fact that you can um, ask questions, no matter how high the cardinality is. And so you can combine them, right? Um, you want to look at the combination of this unique request ID, issue this query uh, from this host at you know this time or whatever. And it's, it's like precision. It sounds like what I normally do with like logs, like I have them all gathered somewhere in, in Splunk or something and I'm searching mm-hmm. for things. Um, it's much more like, because logs are just what? Typically unstructured events. They're just straights, mm-hmm. right? And if you're structuring your logs, then you're already like way ahead of most people. If you're structuring your logs, and then I would say, I would encourage you to structure them very widely, you know, not to issue lots of log lines per um, request, but to like bundle all that stuff together so that you get the additional power of having it all at once. Otherwise, you kind of have to reconstitute it. Like, give me all the log lines for this one request ID, and then you have to do stuff. Um, if you just pack them together, it's much more convenient. Convenient, and then that's basically what Honeycomb is plus the columnar store that we wrote in order to do the exploration. You can also think of it like BI systems. You can think of it like BI systems. I don't know. BI, BI for systems, business intelligence. Oh, okay. For systems, like because like you're you're talking in the beginning about debugging with an ops team in a dashboard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the ops person was just kind of like along for the ride and filling in all of this intuition, all of this you know past scar tissue, all of the you know you weren't able to explore that information because it wasn't in a tool; it was someone else in someone else's brain. Um, this is why like the best debugger on the team is almost always the person who's been there the longest, right? Because they've amassed the most context built up in their brains, which is, I love being that hero. Like I love being the person who just gaze at, at a dashboard and go, it's rest. Like I just feel it in my bones, but it's not actually good for us as teams, right? It's just, I can't take a vacation. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nobody else can explore the data. And I've now had the experience three times uh, where the best debugger on the team was not the person who'd been there the longest, this is at Paris at Facebook and at Honeycomb because when you've taken all of that data about the system and put it into a place where people can explore it with a tool, then the best debugger is going to be the person who's the most curious and persistent. I, I like what you said about the intuition. And I find that like, um, you know, I, I described that problem of debugging something. And I know that there's a person on my team, John, and I feel like he just has a really good model of how the system works in his head. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that systems are getting too large and too complicated and changing too quickly and they're overflowing our heads, like across the board. But I, what you just said there is another thing that I'm so, so excited about, um, which is like our tools as developers, they have not treated us like human beings. They have treated us like automatons. You know, like how many VIM sequences do you know by heart? Way too many. I know way too many. Um, it's been like this point of pride, which is kind of stupid. Um, so, like, the thing that we're really, like, this is all just table stakes. The stuff that we're really passionate about is building for teams, looking for ways to bring everyone up to the level of the best debugger or the person with the most context and the most information about every corner of your systems, right? Because, like, if I get paged about something and I'm like, 
uh, shit, this is about Cassandra. Why don't fuck all about Cassandra? Um, but <laughs> Christine does. And like, we had, didn't we have an outage that was like five or six weeks ago? And I think she was on call then. I'm just going to go look at what she did. I want to like, what questions did she ask? What did she think was meaningful enough to publish the Slack? What got tagged as part of a postmortem? What comments did she leave for herself? You know, I just want to, because I learned Linux by reading other people's bash history files and just trying all the commands. Mm. I love, you know, tapping into that sense of curiosity, almost that, that snoopiness that we have when people are really good at their jobs. We just want to go see how they do things. Um, I'm, I'm so excited about, about like tapping into like the social, you know, once we've gotten the information off our heads then, and how do we help people explore it? How do we make it fun? How do we make it approachable? Um, and how do we make it so that, you know, we forget less stuff? Because when I go to debug a gnarly problem, I'm going to do a deep dive and I'm going to you know, know everything about it for like a week. And then it starts to decay, right? And it asks me two or three months later and I'm just like back to zero. Um, but if I can just have access to how I interacted with the system, what columns did I query? You know, what, what notes did I leave for myself? What were the most useful things that I did? Um, and if I and my team can access that information, then we've forgotten a lot less. And that's nice. I I find like we have I have a bunch of dashboards that somebody has has kindly made and painstakingly put together and um yeah. they they um they have helped me before but but not that much. Yeah, and and fundamentally you're consuming very passively. You're not actually interrogating the system. You're not throwing a hypothesis or asking a question. Um and the best way to actually get good at systems is to force yourself to ask some questions, you know, to predict what, what, what the answer might be. Like every time that you look at someone else's dashboard or even your own dashboard from a past outage, it's, it's like an artifact, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's not, you're not exploring it. It's a very passive consumption. And because it's so passive, we often miss when a data source isn't there anymore or when, you know, it's like the dog that didn't bark. I, I can't even count the number of times that I've been, you know, there's a spike and I'm just looking through my dashboards, looking for the root cause and then realizing that, oh, we forgot to set up the graphing software on that one. Or, <laughs> oh, it stopped sending, this, you know, or just something like that because you're not actually actively asking a question. You're just kind of skimming with your eyeballs, just like scanning. Eyes getting tired. Agreed. I... I you said something, I, I, I was saying, I watched this talk of yours and you said something about how we should be doing more testing in production or something like that. What, mm. what, what does that mean? I think what, I, what I'm trying to say is that we do test in production, whether we want to or not, whether we admit it or not. Um, every config change, like even if you devote a lot of resources to try and keep staging in sync with production, assuming it's even possible with your security you know, conditions and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's never exactly the same. Your config files are different. Every unique combination of ed deploy plus the software you use to deploy plus the environment you're deploying to plus the code itself is unique. There's just, there's literally no way, as anyone who's ever typoed production knows, you know, <laughs> there's some small amount of it that is, it, it is a test because you're doing it for the first time. Um, and I feel like most teams, because of, there's this whole you can't test in production. We, we don't do anything in production that isn't tested. Like they're just not admitting reality. And that causes them to pour too many of their very scarce engineering cycles into trying to make staging perfect. When those, those cycles would be better used <clears throat> making, maybe making guardrails for production, making, you know, investing in things like good canary deploys, 
that automatically roll back as bad and promote as good. Mm. Like that part of the industry is starved for resources. And I think it's because we, we're, we don't have limited resources and the right place to take it from is staging. I think because, well, because staging um, is, is just fragile and full of, yeah, it's just not a good use of time. I think that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't test before production. Obviously we should run tests, but those are for your known items. Um, in the future, known items are not really the hardest problems or even the most frequent problems that we have. It's all about these unknown items, which is, a way I think of of talking about this cliff that we're all going off. You know, it used to be known unknowns. You get paged, you look at it, you kind of know what it was. You go poke around and you solve it. Now it's like when you get paged, you should honestly just be like, uh, "What is this? You know, I haven't seen this before. This is new." Or you don't really know where to start, um, partly because of the, the sheer complexity, and probably just because um, there are so many more possible outcomes or possible root causes. Um, you just need a different, you need to stress resiliency in the modern world, not uh, perfection. And I think that I'm, I'm sort of joking and trying to push people's buttons when I say I test in production, but also sort of not. I mean, it's for real. Like that outage that Google Cloud Platform just had last week. What did they do? So config change worked great in staging. They pushed it to prod, prod took the whole thing down. You can't test everything. Um, so you have to invest in catching things. Failure should be boring, right? That's why we test in prod. And you could say experiment in prod. I don't know, whatever. But I think that like for the known unknowns, you should test before production. But there are so many things that you just can't. And so we should be investing more into tools that let us test. And I think that a really key part of that has been observability. We haven't actually... It's easy to ship things to production. It's much harder to tell what impact it has had. And that's why I feel like something like Honeycomb where you can just poke around is necessary. Like, I think that, I hope that we look back in a couple of years at the battle days when we used to just ship code and wait to get paged. Like how fucking crazy is that? That's insane that we used to just like wait for something bad to happen at a high enough threshold to wake us up. We should have the muscle memory as engineers that if like what causes things to break? Well, usually it's, it's us changing something. So whenever you change something in prod, you should have muscle memory to just go look did what you expect to happen actually happen? Did anything else obvious happen at the same time? Like there's something so satisfying, so much dopamine that you can get straight to your brain just by going and looking and finding something and fixing it before anyone notices or complains. <laughs> so if we have like in the real world, we have a fixed amount of resources. And if we're trying to decide like what percentage of effort should go towards like recovering from production issues and what should go towards uh, preventing them? Um, oh, this is such a personal question. It's based entirely on your business case, right? Like how much appetite do you have for for failure? It's going to be different for a bank than for, you know, and how, how old are you? Who are your customers? You know, startups have way more appetite for risk than um, companies that are serving banks, you know? Um, it, it's It's very, very there's no answer that's exactly the same for any two companies, I think. But it sounds like what you're saying to me is that, that we should put a lot of effort into, into recovering from production issues. Into resiliency. Yeah. Into early detection uh, and mitigation. Um, recovery is an interesting word. Um, often I think it's just understanding. There is many changes you have to make. Um, 
say, say you're rolling out a version of the code that is going to increase the RAM footprint. And it's not a leak, you know it, um, but you don't actually know how much because you run it in staging. And again, you're not going to have the same kind of traffic, the same variance. So you don't actually know. So I'm, I'm arguing that you need to roll things out. You need to have the tooling to make this a, a very, very mundane operation, right? Um, it should roll out to 10%, um, get promoted, run for a while, get promoted 20, 30%, um, and, and, and be able to watch it so that you know if it's about to hit a, you know, out of bounds or something. Because I, I think it's important, like actually, well, I think it's just as a developer, it gives confidence when you can actually just roll back, but not everything is, not everything can be rolled back, I guess. is. Yeah. Especially like when the closer you get to the laying bits down on disc, the more many things are roll forward only. Then you start to get sweaty palms. I don't know. It depends. Yeah. It depends. But there's, I've seen some, some hair raising database migrations. Oh God. I, t- I come from databases. I, I have done things with databases that would turn your hair white. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned earlier that you build your own database. Oh no, no, no. I've spent my entire career telling people not to write a database. So I'd like to be very clear on this point. We have wrote, written a storage engine. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's my, that's, I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Tell me about your storage engine. Oh, it's as dead simple as we could possibly make it. It's a columnar store. Um, that, that is really freaking fast. We target, um, one second for the 95th percentile of all queries. Why did you need your own data store? Well, that's a great question. Believe me, we tried everything out there. Um, so the operations engineering community for 20 years has been investing in time series databases built on metrics, right? Mm-hmm. And we knew that this this was just not a data model that was going to enable the kind of interactive, fast, um, kind of kind of kind of interaction that we wanted to support. And furthermore, we knew that we wanted to have these really wide, arbitrarily wide events. Um, and we knew that because we're dealing with unknown unknowns. Um, we knew that we didn't want to have any schemas because anytime that you have to think about what information you might want to capture and fit it into a schema, it, co- it introduces friction in a really bad way. Um, and then you have to deal with indexes. You know, like one of the problems with every log tool is you have to pick which indexes you have to support. Some of them even charge by indexes, I think. Um, but then if, like, if you need to ask a question about something that isn't indexed, well, you're back to like, oh, I'm going to go get coffee while I'm waiting for this queried around, right? And then if you didn't ask the right question, you've got to go for another walk. And it's just, it's not, it's not interactive. It's not exploratory. Um, so we tried everything out there. there. Druid came a little close, but it was, yeah, it still didn't have kind of richness. Yeah, we knew what we wanted. And so we had to write it. Um, we wrote it as simply as possible. We were using Golang. Um, it um, is descended from Scuba at Facebook for sure. Scuba was just like 10,000 lines of C++. And it was entirely in memory because they didn't have SSDs when they wrote it. And it shows out to rsync for replication. <laughs> it's janky as fuck. Um, but, the, but the architecture is nice. It's distributed. So, um, you know, there's a fan on model where query comes in, uh, fans out to five nodes, does a column scan on all five, aggregates, pushes them back up. So there's too much to aggregate. Um, then it fans out again to another five nodes and repeats. So it, it's very scalable. We can handle very, very high um, throughput just by adding more nodes. So how do, you're saying it doesn't have any indexes or it indexes everything? Well, columns are effectively indexes, right? 
Yeah. So everything is equally fast, basically. It's sort of like index everything because everything's exactly. a column. Yes. Yeah. And you can have arbitrarily wide that we use a file per column basically. So up to the Linux file open file handle limits, which is like 32k or something. Yeah. It becomes not tractable for humans long before then. <laughs> That's I, I like this idea that there is this uh very janky tool at Facebook that that uh that changed the world. Uh, oh, they can't kill it. It's too useful, but um, no, it has been not invested in. And so it is horribly hard to understand. It's aggressively hostile to users. It's, it does everything it can to get you to go away, but people just can't let it, let it go. Do, do you think that like more, uh, more people should, should kind of embrace the chaos and, yes. and have more of a startup focus? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I did. I thought you were going a different direction with that question, but yes, that too. Um, okay. Like, Which way did go? you think I was going? <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to ask if more people should build tools based on events instead of metrics. Oh. <laughs> and yes, I'm, I'm really, you're very, I'm, you know, opening the door. I, we've given talks on how we built our storage engine as an industry. We have to make the jump from very limited. Like the thing about metrics is also, they are always looking at the aggregate, they, they aggregate, and the older they are, the, the, the less fine-grained they are, right? That's how they drop data is by aggregating at right time. Um, we drop data by sampling instead because it is really, really powerful to have those raw events. Um, this is a shift that I think the entire industry has to make. And I almost don't care if it's us or not. That's a lie. I totally care if it's us or not. But there needs to be more of us, right? There needs This needs to be a shift that the entire industry makes because it's the only way to understand these systems. It's the only way I've ever seen. Um, we should talk about tracing real quick um, because tracing is just a different way of visualizing events. Tracing is the only other thing that I know of that is oriented around events. Oh, what I was starting to say was that metrics are great for describing the health of the system, right? Um, but they don't tell you anything about the event because they're not fine-grained and they lack the context. And as a developer... We don't care about the health of the system. If it's up and serving my code, I don't give a shit about it. What I care about is every request, every event. And I care about all of the details from the perspective of that event, right? And we spend so much time trying to work backwards from these metrics to the questions we actually want to ask. And that's, that bridge right there is what is being filled by all of this intuition, you know, and, and jumping around between tools, like jumping from the metrics an aggregate for the system, then jumping into your logs, trying to prep for the string that you think might, you know, shed some light on it. Everything becomes so much easier. We can just ask questions from the perspective of the event. Um, tracing is interesting because tracing is just like honeycomb, except for it's depth first is how I think of it. Honeycomb is breadth first, where you're slicing and dicing between events, um, trying to isolate the ones that have characteristics that you're looking for. And tracing is about, okay, now I've found one of those events. Now tell me everything about it from start to finish. And we just released our tracing product. And what's really freaking cool about it is you can go back and forth, right? You can start with, all right, I don't, have, I don't know the question. All I have is a vague problem report. So I'm going to go try and find something, find an outlier, find an error that matches, you know, this user ID, query, whatever. Oh, okay, cool. I found it. Now show me a trace. Trace everything that, you know, hits this, this hop or this, this query or whatever. And then once you've been like, oh, cool. Here's, I found, I found one. Then you can zoom back out and go, okay, now show me everyone else who was affected by this. Show me everyone else who has experienced this. And this, we've been debugging our own storage engine this way for about three or four months now. It is mind blowing just how easy it makes problems. 
Yeah, that sounds powerful for sure. Um, I guess we're kind of getting the tools back that we lost when we split up into a million different services uh, in some ways. Yeah, totally. It's kind of like distributed GDB. Mm-hmm. So I don't talk to too many ops people on this podcast. I, I wanted to ask you, um, uh, what, uh, what do you think developers have to learn from like an ops uh, culture or mindset or? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, and first of all, I, I heard you say that you're on, on call and you get paid for the ops people. Bless you. This <laughs> is the model of the future. And I want to make it clear that um, I don't want to... Ops has had a problem with masochism like for as long as I've been alive. Um, and... The point of, of putting software engineers on call is not to invite them into masochism with us. It's to raise our standards for everyone and the amount of sleep that we should expect. Um, I think I feel very strongly about this. The only way to write and, and support good code is by shortening those feedback loops and putting the same people who write the software um, on call for it. Um, so it's just it's just necessary. Um, in the In the glorious future, which is here for many of us, we are all distributed systems engineers. And one thing about distributed systems is that it has a very high operational cost, right? Uh, which is why software engineers are now having to learn ops. I, I, I'll often say that I feel like the first wave of DevOps is all about yelling at ops people to learn how to write code. You know, and we did. <laughs> cool. We did. And I feel like now for just the last year or two, the pendulum's been kind of swinging the other way. And now it's all about, okay, software engineers, you know, it's your turn. It's your turn to learn to build operable services. It's your turn to learn to instrument really well, to make the, the systems explain themselves back to you. It's your turn to, you know, pick up the ownership side of, of the software that you've been developing. And I think that this is great. I think this is better for everyone. I, it is not saying that everyone needs to be equally expert in every area. It's just saying that what we have learned about shipping good software is that everyone should write code and everyone should support code. It's something like 70, 80% of our time is spent maintaining and extending and debugging, not greenfield development, um, which is fundamentally like software engineers do more ops than software engineering. <laughs> so I think it makes sense to, to acknowledge that, that. I think it makes sense to reward people for that. I am a big proponent of you should never make someone a senior engineer. Don't promote them if they don't, you know, if they don't know how to operate their services, if they don't show good operational hygiene. You have to show that this is what you value in an org, um, not what you kick around and, and deprioritize. And people pay attention to signals like promotions and pay grades and who thinks they're too good for what work. Definitely. I think there there is a there is a ops culture. Maybe it's just my perception that you mentioned like masochism. I don't know where the causation mm -hmm. and correlation go. Uh, that there, that there's a I don't know if developers are going to become more. Um, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> there's a certain uh, there's a certain attitude sometimes, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this. But of you know, like you know, call me when something's on fire. You know, that's that's yeah. when I'm alive, right? Is when things are breaking and yeah. I believe me, I'm one of those people. I love what I love it. I'm the person you want to call in a crisis. If if we're not, if the database is down, we're not sure if it's ever coming up again. The company might be screwed. Like I am the person that you want at your side. <laughs> and I've I've spent my career like working myself out of a job um, repeatedly. I guess that's why I'm a startup CEO now. But but that aside, it's you can both enjoy something and recognize that it's too much of it is not good for you. You know, 
I enjoy drinking. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do try to be, you know, I, I try to be responsible about it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the things that you call out and praise in your culture are the things that are going to get repeated. And if you praise people for firefighting and heroics, you're going to get more of that. And if you treat it as an embarrassing episode that we're, you know, yeah, glad we got through it together. You know, you privately thank people or whatever, but you don't call it out and praise it. And you make it clear that this is not something you value, that it was an accident and you take it seriously, you know, and you give people enough time to execute on all of the tasks that came out of the postmortem instead of, you know, having a retrospective coming up with all the shit and then like deprioritizing it going on to future. <laughs> that doesn't, that doesn't say, yes, we value your time and, and we don't want to see more firefighting. I think that these organizational things are really the responsible uh, responsibility of any senior management and senior engineers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a tricky problem. I wanted to ask you, you are now CEO. Do you still get to, you know, work as an individual contributor? Do you still get to uh, fight fires and get down in the trenches? I'm not, I'm not, well, I am fighting fires, but not of the technical variety. Um, I wanted to be CTO. That's what I was shooting for. Um, but circumstances, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I believe in this mission. I've seen it change people's lives. I've seen it make healthier teams and I am going to see it through. I really miss sitting down in front of a terminal every morning. I really, really, really do. But I've always been highly motivated by what has to be done. You know, I'm not, I don't play with technology for fun. I get in the morning and I look at what, what needs to be done. Um, so I guess, I guess it, it, this is just another variation on that. This is what needs to be done. I spent a year trying to get someone else to be CEO. I'm done. Uh, I can't find someone. That's fine. I'm, I'm in it for now. I'll just take it as far as I can. It's a very uh, pragmatic approach. I always worry like, you know, that if they, if they take my, whatever, my text editor away from me, like I'll never get it back just because I've, I've seen it happen yeah. to other people. <laughs> for sure. I, I've written a blog post about the engineer manager pendulum um, because I believe that the best technologists that I've ever gotten to work with um, were people who had gone back and forth a couple of times um, because the best tech leads are the ones who have spent time in management. They're the ones with the empathy and the, um, the knowledge for how to motivate people and how to connect the business to the technology and explain it to people in a way that motivates them. And the best managers I've ever had, wine managers, were always never more than two or three years removed from writing code and doing hands-on work themselves. And so I feel like it's a real shame that it's often a one-way path. And I think it doesn't have to be if we're assertive about knowing that what we want is to go back and forth. Certainly what I hope for for myself. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of precedent for for switching back and forth. There isn't. But um, since I wrote that piece, I I still get contacted by people every day just saying, thank you. This is what I wanted. I didn't know it was possible. I'm totally going to do it now. I actually wrote it for a friend of mine at Slack who was considering going through that transition. I was just like, yeah, you should do it. And I wrote the post for him and he went back to being an IC and he is so much happier. So he went back to being a contributor rather than a, in a management role? Yeah, he was a director. And he's having an immense amount of impact in his senior IC role because he, he's been there for so long. He knows everything. He can do these really great industry-moving projects. Oh, that's awesome. How, how are you yeah. doing for time? Do you have to run? Um, 
don't know. Let me see. Oh no, I can do a few minutes late. So, do you like dashboards or not? Um, I think that some dashboards are inevitable. Like you need a couple of just like top top level. All right. I think that a couple are inevitable, but they're not a debugging tool, right? Mm-hmm. They're a state of the world tool. As soon as you have a question about it, you want to jump in and explore and ask questions. And I don't call that a dashboard. Some people do. Um, but I think it's too confusing. Interactive dashboards are fine. Um, but you do have to ask that question. Ask those questions. You need to support, you know, and what about this? And what about for that user? And what about... You know, I don't care what you call it as long as you can do that. I do. I also think that like um, a huge pathology right now uh, of these complex systems is that we're overpaging ourselves, and we're overpaging ourselves because we don't actually trust our tools to let us ask any question and, and isolate the source of the problem quickly. So we rely on like these clusters of alerts to give us a clue as to what the source is, and. If you actually have a tool with this data that you trust, I think that the only paging alerts that you really need are like uh, request per second errors, latency, um, maybe saturation, um, and then and then you just need a dashboard that at a top level, at a high level, shows you that. Um, and then whenever you actually want to dig in and understand something, then you jump into a more of a debugging framework. So these issues you talked about before, uh, like a specific user. Um, I like you would never get paid for that. How would that come that to your attention? That is a great question. That is a great point. So many of the problems that show up in these systems will never show up in your alerts, or else you're over alerting, right? Because mm-hmm. they're localized. This is another thing that's different for, from this, about the systems that we have now versus the old style of systems. Like it used to be that everyone shared the same pools, and you know you, they shared a tier for the web, for the app, for the database. And so they all had roughly the same experience. With these new distributed systems, you know, I mean, like say you had a 99.5% reliability in your old system. Well, that meant that everyone's erroring like 0.5% of the time. So I mean, on the new systems, um, it more likely means that um, the system is like 100% up for, for almost everyone. But everyone whose last name starts with SHA and who happens to be on this shard, they're 100% down. Right, <laughs> you get the same. Like, if you're just getting the top level like percentages, your paging alerts are not going to be reflective of the actual experience of your users. So then you're like, well, okay, you can generate alerts for every single like you know combination of blah 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 blah, blah and then you're just like going to have flat alerts for the time. So honestly, like a lot of a, a lot of the problems that we are going to see are going to come to us through support or through, you know, users reporting problems. And over time, as you're interacting with the system, you'll learn what the most common high signals are. Maybe you'll want to have like an end-to-end check that uh, traverses every shard, right? It's every shard um, or something like that. It's, it's different for every architectural type. Um, but I don't remember what the question was. Yeah. I, oh, I was just like talking about the difference in systems. Yeah. You can't... There are so many ways that systems will break, but only affect a few people now. So it makes the high cardinality um, questions even more important. And like you were mentioning, you know, developers should should be able to operate their systems. I, I think like uh, actually developers should spend time doing support. It's it's not it's horrible. It's oh, not fun. Oh God, yes. Sure. <laughs> but uh, no, but it really takes empathy for your users. 
Yeah. And so the, the issue, like with whatever you said, users with the last name SH, like that'll come in, you know, that'll come yeah. in as a support ticket. And if, if I'm busy and I'm a developer and that kind of, I'll be like, that, that doesn't make sense. Are you sure? And then like, but yeah. if I actually have to, if I'm the one who has to deal with this ticket, you know? Yeah. No, totally. Yeah. We're big fans of, you know, having everyone rotate through, you know, on call, rotate through support, um, triaging. It doesn't even have to be that often, you know, maybe once a quarter or so is enough to keep you very grounded. It's like an empathy factor, I think. It really is. Yeah. You know, and, and like one of the hardest things, one of the things that separates good senior engineers for me is that they know how to spend their time on things that have the most impact, right? Um, business impact. Well, what does that mean? Well, often it means things that actually materially affect your user's experience. Mm-hmm. And there's no better way um, than just having to be on a support rotation. Because if you don't, if you aren't feeding your intuition with the right inputs, you're going, your sense of what has the most impact is going to be off, right? I like to think of like the intuition as being something you have to kind of cultivate with the right experiences um, and, and the right shared experiences, right? You want a team to kind of have the same idea of what makes important, important. As a team, like, I feel like there, there's healthy teams and unhealthy teams, um, mm-hmm. But I mean, some teams uh, really uh, gel, and I always feel like uh, the ops people tend to be more cohesive than than other oh, groups. A lot, a lot of it is because of it's like it's like the uh, band of brothers effect, right? You go to war together. You have each other's <laughs> backs. You know, getting woken up in the middle of the night. There, there, there's just a, every every team, I, every place I've ever worked, the ops team has been, you know, the one that just has the the most identity, I guess, mm. uh, the most character and identity, the most in-jokes, usually very ghoulish, you know, graveyard humor. Um, but I think that, I think that the, um, the impact of a good on-call rotation is that there is this sense of shared sacrifice. And I would liken that to salt in food. A teaspoon makes your meal amazing. A cup of it means that you're, you're crying, you know, uh, <laughs> But like a teaspoon of shared sacrifice really pulls a team together. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, you want you you don't want it to be, you don't want it to be like the person can't sleep at night. No, <laughs> no. But like if if one of one of the people on your team has a baby, then everybody just like immediately volunteers because they're not going to let them get woken up by both a baby and the pagers. So they're just going to fill in for them until they're for the next year. You know that that type of thing. Mm. Like lowering the barrier to it should just be assumed that you know you want to have each other's backs that nobody should be too impacted that, you know, as, as an ops manager, I, whenever somebody got pages in the middle of the night, I would encourage them not to come in or to sleep in, or I would take the pager for them for the next night or something like that. It, it just looking out for each other's welfare and well-being is, is the thing that binds people. I think. Definitely. Well, it's been great to talk to you. Was there anything, I don't I liked your, uh, I liked your controversial statements about, you know, fuck metrics. What else you got? <laughs> metrics dashboards can all die in a fire yeah and every software engineer should be on call boom <laughs> all right there's the title for the uh the episode <laughs> there you go <laughs> gonna make a lot of friends here <laughs> all right that's the show thank you for listening to the co-recursive podcast i'm adam bell your host If you like the show, please tell a friend. 